This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. On May 10th, 1869, a photograph was taken at the famous Gold Spike Ceremony at Promontory Summit, Utah. This was important in American history because it's the day that the East and West were connected by the completion of the first transcontinental railroad line, something that would ultimately allow for exponential growth in the United States. About six months later, another very important moment in American history occurred. This time it was about 2,200 miles due east of the Golden Spike Ceremony. It involved Rutgers and a school later to be named Princeton. Welcome to the Football History Dude Podcast where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. Your host is Arnie Chapman. Football is his passion, and he wants you to come along with him to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board his DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. This time as we step off the DeLorean, the date is November 6th. 1869, and we are in New Brunswick, New Jersey, to witness a very special event. On this day, about 100 spectators witnessed history. Rutgers took on New Jersey, later to be named Princeton. The game? Well, this is where it gets good because this was the first American football game to ever be played. Now, it didn't look anything like it does today, but it was a start. And during the early days, it was still basically rugby, American soccer, football, whatever you want to call it. And it would remain the same for roughly the next seven years. Then the man we talked about in the very first episode of this podcast got involved. This man's name was Walter Camp, aptly referred to as the father of American football. For his contributions to changing the game away from this rugby-ish, soccer-ish style to more of a resemblance of what we see today. American football. Of course, it still looked way different than what we're going to watch tomorrow night on September 17th, 2020, which is going to be a day that we will talk about. But we are on our way. And over the next decade and a half, Walter Camp and his buddies continued to evolve the game to something that we're more familiar with. Then on November 12th of 1892, everything changed. This was when the subject of the second episode of the podcast was paid $500 by the Allegheny Athletic Association to play a game of football against the Pittsburgh Athletic Club. That man's name was William Pudge Heffelfinger, a standout at Yale thus becoming the first known player to be paid to play football. But this wasn't even realized that he was the first true professional football player until maybe about 80 years or so after the event. This is because in 1895, John Bradlier was the first openly paid player. We found out in a few episodes ago from Joe Horgan how it was found out to be that, that it was Pudge and not Bradlier. So I'm going to tell you, go ahead. Go back and listen to that episode because it's a very interesting conversation. Then a few years later, a team was formed. Which brings us to the point where I'm going to tell you about this special episode that we have in store for you. We gathered experts on sort of a round table, if you will, to discuss the original teams of the NFL. The reason you ask? Well, simple. Because tomorrow, we celebrate the 100th birthday of the NFL, which if you're listening to this in the future, I get it. The NFL's birthday was in the past. However, we just want to recognize that September 17th, 2020, 
is a very important day. It's going to be the time when the league is 100 years old. And if you're not familiar with that date, the reason why it's so significant is because back on September 17th of 1920, Ralph Hay brought together other owners in his Hutmobile Auto Showroom to finalize the formation of what would end up becoming the National Football League. Now, we covered this in depth in a couple different episodes as well, but we're going to go ahead and do that even more this week. We're going to have many former guests of the show to share a little history of the teams that they're the experts on, including some others that I'm going to cover myself. I will get full credits at the end of the episode, so please stick around until the end so you can hear all of the contributors on this awesome project and everything else that they have their hands in. But before I bring on the roundtable experts, I wanted to tell you about this week's sponsor, the Professional Football Researchers Association. You can see many, well, (laughs) if not all, of this week's guest work in the PFRA Chronicles. If this is the first time you've been introduced to the PFRA, here's a quick little introduction. The Professional Football Researchers Association is a nonprofit educational organization that's dedicated to preserving and promoting the history of professional football. Formed in 1979, the organization has regularly published its magazine, The Coffin Corner, as well as a host of books. Their website has articles, game books, line scores, and a multitude of other archival materials for researchers as well as the fans of the game. This is available all for members. Every two years, the PFRA holds their conventions with guest speakers and special events. To find out more information about the PFRA or to join the organization, go to their website, www.profootballresearchers.com. Or you can also follow them on Twitter, at Football History, also on Instagram, at PFRA underscore photos. And you can also find more information about the PFRA and all of our guests over on the website, which you can get to the website through your show notes on your podcast player or by heading to sportshistorynetwork.com, which is the headquarters for your favorite sports yesteryear. And if you're interested in becoming an official partner of the network, please reach out to us on the website. But for now, let's get into the great content from our guest experts covering the original teams of the NFL. First up, I'm going to go ahead and read some experts from an in-depth article provided by Chris Willis of NFL Films regarding the Canton Bulldogs. It's probably fair to say that without the Canton Bulldogs and the owner, the timeline of the NFL would not be the same. For the entire article, you should really go to the website and check it out. But here it is. The Canton Bulldogs, a team history and overview. The Canton Bulldogs were a pro football team located in Canton, Ohio. The Canton team started playing in the unofficial Ohio League from 1902 to 1906, and then again in 1911 to 1919, as well as in the National Football League from 1920 to 1923, then again in 1925 to 1926. The Bulldogs will go on to win three Ohio League championships in four seasons, 1916 to 1917, and then also 1919. They were also NFL champions in 1922 and 1923, as the Bulldogs played 25 straight games without a defeat, still an NFL record. As a result of their success and the NFL's founding in Canton, the Pro Football Hall of Fame is located there. Jim Thorpe, the Olympian and well-known athlete, was a Bulldogs' greatest player. In 1924, Sam Deutsch, the owner of the NFL's Cleveland Indians, bought the team and took the Bulldogs' name and players with him, naming his team the Cleveland Bulldogs. 
The Cleveland Bulldogs went on to win the 1924 NFL Championship with a team stocked with former Canton players. The Canton Bulldogs were reestablished in 1925 with new owners and the NFL considers the 1925-1926 Bulldogs to be the same team as the earlier ones from 1920 to 1923. But let's go back to the beginning. Football Origins Prior to the debut of pro football in the city, an amateur team from Canton was considered as the best team in Stark County. Until about 1902, it competed with the Akron East Ends for the Ohio Independent Championship. When the Massillon Tigers arrived on the scene and went professional, Canton, an amateur team, was no longer competitive. The Canton Bulldogs were officially established on November 15, 1904 as the Canton Athletic Club a club designed to operate baseball and football teams. The statement stated that the football team was to be a professional organization complete with a professional coach. The main goal of the new Canton professional team was to defeat the Massillon Tigers, who had won the Ohio League Championship in 1903 and 1904. To do this, Canton recruited several of the best players in the game for more money than what they were getting. Bill Laub, a player, team captain, and coach for the Akron East Ends, was hired as the team's first-ever coach. The team began its 1905 season with a 7-0 record. The Bulldogs then traveled to Latrobe, Pennsylvania, to play the Latrobe Athletic Association, led by quarterback John Brellier. Latrobe was not only the current Pennsylvania champions, but had gone undefeated for the last three seasons. In a tough back-and-forth contest, Canton lost 6-0. But the worst part of the setback came when Laub was injured and was unable to finish. Blondie Wallace, a former All-American for the Penn Quakers, was named his replacement. Two weeks later, Canton lost the Ohio League title to the Tigers, 14-4. During the 1906 season, the team from Canton became known as the Bulldogs. Early in November, R.C. Johnson, an editorial cartoonist for the Canton Repository, drew a picture with the man next to a cub lying in wait for the Massillon Tigers. Suddenly, overnight, the team was called the Bulldogs. Wallace began the season by signing several players off the Massillon team, such as Jack Lang, Jack Hayden, Herman Kirchhoff, and Clark Schrantz, away from the Tigers. Due to the money being spent by Canton and Massillon on professional players, both teams ended up with a spending deficit that had to be shouldered by local businessmen. That year, the Bulldogs won their first game against the Tigers, at Canton, mind you but lost the second game at Massillon. Due to rules of the championship series, to win in the second game allowed Massillon to claim the Ohio championship. Shortly after the game, a Massillon newspaper charged Wallace with throwing the second contest to entice Massillon to play a third game to decide the championship. Canton denied the charges, maintaining that Massillon only wanted to ruin the club's reputation before the final game against Latrobe. Although Massillon could not prove that Canton had thrown the game, The accusation tarnished Canton's name and no one attended the Latrobe game. The scandal nearly ruined pro football in northeastern Ohio. The Canton Morning News put a $20,000 price tag on the 1906 Massillon Tigers team, while many speculate that the Bulldogs probably cost more. While Massillon was still able to field a local team in 1907 and still won the Ohio League Championship, the Canton team folded. But then we get to the Bulldogs' return and Jack Cusack taking over. In 1911, Canton finally fielded a new team called the Canton Professionals. This would be the first time, but not the last, that the city of Canton showed their resolve by not letting their pro football disappear. The community was now in love with the sport. 
That fall, the team was made up of entirely local players and the pay was undoubtedly small. In their comeback season, the pros finished in second place in the Ohio League, standings behind Peggy Parrott and the Shelby Blues. In 1912, at the age of 21, Jack Cusack became the team's secretary treasurer at no cost to the team, as a favor to team captain Roscoe Oberlin. However, Cusack was disliked by the current manager, H.H. Halter. Cusack later went behind Halter's back to sign a contract with Peggy Parrott's Akron Indians. Concerning conditions for a match between the two squads, something Halter was unable to do. When Jack's actions were discovered by Halter, he tried to dispose of Jack's services through a team meeting. However, during the meeting, the team sided with Cusack after discovering he had secured a five-year lease on Lakeside Park for the pros. The result was Halter being removed from the team and Jack being named the team's new manager. Then moving forward, we have another event to note. Jim Thorpe signs with the Canton Bulldogs in 1915. The notoriety of the world's greatest athlete was possibly even more important in name for the league than anything that he did on the field. And because Jim Thorpe was able to draw big crowds, Cusack was able to put together a financially stable squad that included several All-Americans. The average attendance prior to Thorpe's arrival was about 1,500. That soon rose to 5,000, 6,000, and eventually 8,000 spectators, which was the capacity of Canton's Lakeside Park. For the two big games at the end of the year against crosstown rival Massillon, each game drew over 10,000 fans. Some reports claim that the game in Massillon even had nearly 15,000 spectators. Thorpe would remain pro football's chief attraction until Red Grange would enter the pro game in 1925. But going back, in 1917, the Bulldogs once again claimed the Ohio League Championship by finishing with a 9-1 record. Neither Canton nor Maslin played during the 1918 season because of World War I and the flu epidemic. During that missed season, Jack Cusack wanted a bigger payday. He decided to try and strike it rich by leaving Canton to start up an oil business in Oklahoma. He sold the team to Ralph Hay, a successful automobile dealer in Canton. The Bulldogs would return to glory through the years and rumplings of a pro league were in the air. And now we get to that day. The NFL's first meeting on September 17th of 1920 in Canton, Ohio. And here is that story. On a hot and muggy Friday night in Canton, Ohio on September 17th, 10 professional football teams convened at the automobile showroom of Ralph Hay. The football managers arrived into town by train, but nobody really stopped the presses to announce their arrival. Hay really didn't know how many owners would actually show, so his small office wasn't big enough to have the meeting. So, they moved out in the spacious showroom with the cars on display. It was quite a scene as these milestone men met in the showroom of an automobile dealership. One of the ten owners would always remember the trip to Cannes. George Hallis, in his autobiography, Hallis, described the experience as such. Morgan O'Brien, a Staley engineer and a football fan who was being very helpful in administrative matters, and I went to Canton on the train. The showroom, big enough for four cars, Hupmobiles and Jordans, occupied the ground floor of the three-story brick Oddfellows building. Chairs were few, and I sat on a running board. At the meeting were the four teams who were at the August get-together with same representatives. Hay and Thorpe for Canton, Need and Ranny for Akron. O'Donnell and Kofal for Cleveland, and Stork for Dayton. Also were Walter H. Flanagan, the veteran manager of the Rock Island Independence, Earl Ball of the Ball Mason Jar Company, 
and the backer for the Muncie Flyers. George Hallis and Morgan O'Brien representing the A.E. Staley's Decatur team. Chicago contractor Chris O'Brien, who operated the Chicago Cardinals. Leo Lyons represented his Rochester Jeffersons and Dr. Elva A. Young, owner of the Hammond Pros. After some informal discussion beforehand, the meeting started at 8.15 p.m. by Hay. Frank Need of the Akron squad took the minutes and had typed them up on a letterhead of the Akron professional football team. Although the meeting officially started at 8.15, some of the main issues might have been decided before. Hay suggested they go out on record. What they did decide was to change the name of the organization to the American Professional Football Association, the APFA. The managers might have felt that the use of the word association was much more loose in general than using the word league, denoting maybe less of a commitment. Several managers urged Hay to take the association's presidency, but he realized that the organization needed a bigger name to earn the respect from the public and the nation's sports pages. Thorpe should be our man. He's by far the biggest name we have. No one knows me, Hay would say. So they chose the biggest name in pro football to be the president, Jim Thorpe. Old Jim was elected, and sure enough, Hay was right, as the headlines and sports pages across the country would lead with the naming of Thorpe as the league's president. Most of the managers in the room knew that Thorpe's executive abilities did not match his athletic prowess, but they expected Hay to work behind the scenes to help guide the league. Stanley Kofall was named vice president, and Art Ranney was elected secretary-treasurer, giving the three main Ohio clubs all the executive positions. The group decided to charge $100 fee for membership, but this was just for show. As Hallis would admit, we announced that the membership in the league would cost $100 per team. I can testify no money changed hands. I doubt if there was 100 bucks in the whole room. We just wanted to give our organization a facade of financial stability. Other business discussed was the appointment of the committee to draw rules and regulations and the decision to furnish a list of all players used during the season to all clubs by the first day of the new year. According to League Minutes, the three major problems in professional football had not been directly addressed, but the association must have talked about them because the media coverage of the meeting would stress the action of the managers not mentioned in the minutes. Most of the newspapers announced that the association would not use undergraduates and that all contracts would be honored. News of the Pro Football League would spread across the country, but it was not the main headline in every sports page. Even in the Canton repository, the day's biggest news was the Canton Bulldog signing of Pete Fats Henry, the former Washington and Jefferson All-American tackle, and only on the following page did the paper mention that a new Pro Football League was formed. And there you have it. A new league is born, and the reason why tomorrow is the 100th birthday of the NFL. But let's get back to the Bulldogs. They were just, eh, okay in 1920 and 21. But then in 1922 and 1923, the Canton Bulldogs became the first back-to-back champs of the Young League. The Bulldogs were sold to Sam Deutsch and became the Cleveland Bulldogs. But they were still tough, winning the 1924 championship. So even though under a different city name, they were like mm, champions three times in a row. The Bulldogs sold back to Canton for the 1925 season. And then the wheels kind of started to fall off, finishing an even 4-4 four and four for the 1925 season, and then all the way down to 20th place in the last season of the franchise with a 1-9-3 record for the 1926 season. The mightiest team during the early 20th century in Ohio were gone. But the long-lasting impact is still felt today. The Pro Football Hall of Fame is located in Canton, Ohio, 
and tomorrow will be the 100th anniversary of the day that Ralph Hay brought together owners to create the greatest sports league known to man. Well, at least in my opinion, that is. Now we move on to a familiar voice of the podcast and Sports History Network, Joe Ziemba. He's the host of When Football Was Football. He's going to go ahead and stop by to share an overview of three teams near another epicenter of football in the early days. That is Chicago. Take it away, Joe. The origins of the Chicago Tigers. While Paul Pardon, the manager of the Hammond Indiana Pros, was sitting in his jail cell in December of 1919, he might have been thinking about the future of his football team. Pardon had just been arrested for violating the, quote, bad check, unquote, law in the state of Illinois. He had written salary checks to his players for the Hammond Pros, most of whom resided in Illinois on November 26, and they eventually bounced. The boys were not too happy about it. When Pardon was not able to make good on the payments, some of his players promptly encouraged local authorities to arrest their boss. As a result, Pardon occupied a small cell, courtesy of the village of Oak Park, Illinois, after not being able to pay his hefty $12,000 bail. It was perhaps not a coincidence that many of the 1919 Hammond pros decided to play elsewhere in 1920 where their paychecks might actually be viable. It's also likely not a coincidence that a couple of the angriest players, Milt G. and Shorty Desjardins, were two of the primary movers behind the new Chicago Tigers team in 1920. The Moline, Illinois Dispatch reported that, The Hammond professional team of last season, meaning 1919, was harassed by players' dissensions and broke up before the end of the season. Desjardins and G, center and quarterback of last year's team, are running a team in Chicago known as the Tigers. Desjardins, an All-American center from the University of Chicago, paired easily with G, an All-American quarterback from Dartmouth, to anchor the middle of the Tigers' offense. The third organizer of the Tigers was fullback Gil Falcon, who also handled coaching duties. On the management side, the Chicago Cubs ticket manager, Rube Cook, assisted with scheduling and organization. It was an exciting time for the Tigers, especially when the Midwest media took notice of the star power on the roster. The Chicago Tribune stated on October 10th, college and university football stars of other years who still like the gridiron pastime have their first big day of the 1920 season today. Two dozen of them will mix in list at Cubs Park and from advanced indications of their clash, Chicago Tigers versus Racing Cardinals will be on display of football class similar to that of a Big Ten conference game. The Gazette in Iowa reported on the game result and the quality of talent on the field, it said. A crowd of 10,000 saw the Racing Cardinals and Chicago Tigers play a 0-0 tie at Cubs Park yesterday. 26 college alumni representing the two professional football teams. For the Tigers, it was an auspicious start to the season. The team managed to reserve Cubs Park, now known as Wrigley Field, as its home field for the year and attracted a large enough opening day crowd to justify the use of that facility. The following week, the Tigers edged the Detroit Heralds 12-0 at Cubs Park in front of 5,000 setting up a battle with the Decatur Staley's for the, quote, professional championship 
of the Midwest, unquote, according to the Decatur Herald. Although the contest was originally scheduled to be staged in Decatur, the Tigers ended up hosting the game in Chicago. Before another 5,000 attendees, the Staley's persevered 10-0. Eventually, the Tigers finished the 1920 campaign with a 2-5-1 record and then disappeared from the league. However, there is one footnote to the Tigers' history that needs to be addressed. A story had been floating around for years indicating that the game between the Tigers and the Cardinals on November 7, 1920 would be for more than bragging rights. If the report was accurate, the teams would be playing for the right to remain in existence. In other words, the losing team would become the property of the winner, so that only one of the two would remain in Chicago. While the Cardinals won that contest 6-3, to there is certainly no proof that such a bet ever existed. In fact, the Tigers not only failed to fold up their tent after the loss, but the team continued on with its season, losing to Canton and the Decatur Staley's while grabbing a non-league win over the local Thorn Tornadoes on November 28th. While the Chicago Tigers are still considered one of the original teams forming the American Professional Football Association, no one representing the club was present at the planning meeting on September 17, 1920. The Tigers joined the league between that date and October 10th, when they played their first game with the Cardinals. And because the organization never returned for the circuit's second season, the Tigers hold the dubious distinction of being the first league team to fold. He was too small for high school football and too often injured to enjoy a successful collegiate career, but George Hallis ultimately found his niche in the newborn professional ranks. After a solid debut with the Hammond Pros in 1919, Hellas was recruited to manage the football team and play in the baseball team at the A.E. Staley Company in Decatur, Illinois, in March of 1920. Hellas did not start the Staley football program. It played a full schedule against local teams in 1919, finishing with a 6-1 record against opponents such as the Rantoul Aviators and the Arcola Independents. If anything, Hellas was a visionary, and after accumulating personal contacts through his collegiate years at Illinois, then a successful season with the Great Lakes training team during World War I, as well as the Hammond Pros, Hellas received permission from the Staley Company owner to develop a more competitive club. The players Hellas brought in would work at the Staley plant and also practice daily on company time, which was a distinct advantage in those days. In his autobiography, Hellas explained that the objectives of the football team were, quote, to stimulate employee morale and fitness and spread the Staley name throughout the nation, unquote. In order to do so, Hellas would need to elevate the status of his grid team from a local powerhouse to a competitive player on the national stage. Hellas explained in his book that, I wrote to Ralph Hay, the manager of the Canton Bulldogs, one of the best-run and most prominent teams. I mentioned our need for a league. He called a meeting on September 17, 1920. Representing the Staley's at that meeting would be Hallis and Staley engineer Morgan O'Brien, according to the Decatur Herald. George Hallis, who will have charge of the Staley football team this fall, and Morgan O'Brien, secretary, left for Canton, Ohio, where a meeting of coaches and managers of the leading professional football teams of the country will be held. 
The object of the meeting is to organize a professional football league. The Staley's fully supported the creation of the American Professional Football Association, especially if it would help improve the scheduling process for the Staley's. After kicking off the season with easy wins over nearby adversaries such as the Moline Universal Tractors and the Kiwani Walworths, the Staley stepped up and scheduled contests with the Minneapolis Marines, the Hammond Pros, and the Racine Cardinals in Chicago. Despite the competitive nature of the campaign, the Staley's finished with a sparkling 10-1-2 record in 1920, with the lone loss coming against the Racine Cardinals. That mark was good enough for second place in the new league, although Hallis presumed that his club had captured the title. At the owners' meeting in the spring of 1921, the championship was awarded to an undefeated 8-0-3 Akron. With no formal scheduling process and without a playoff system, there were still several items that the new league would need to address in the future, and Hallis would ensure that he was prominent in any of those discussions for the next several decades. During the season, Hallis switched some games to Chicago to take advantage of larger seating capacities using Cubs Park. Only three games were actually played in Decatur, grossing a total of about $1,900 per Hallis, while five contests were staged in Chicago, bringing in over $20,000. The economic writing was on the wall for the Staley's, who would become known forever as the Chicago Bears in the near future. As for that first APFA year, Hallis was pleased. He said, the 1920 season confirmed my belief that professional football has a great future. The Origin of the Racing Cardinals While the Arizona Cardinals today can claim to be one of only two original NFL franchises still in existence, the team can also take credit for being the oldest professional club. The lineage of the Cardinals can be traced back to 1899 and the person of one Chris O'Brien. In that year, 18-year-old Chris O'Brien, along with his brother Pat and a neighbor called Tom Clancy, formed a neighborhood football team called the Morgan Athletic Association. It was simply a group of local kids who loved the budding game of football. After some success in 1899, the members of the team joined the more formal Morgan Athletic Club in 1900, a social entity that offered a variety of sporting opportunities for its members. Although still a teenager, Chris O'Brien was responsible for organizing the football team, while Tom Clancy took care of the scheduling and advertising. Then, in 1901, the team name that still exists today was first utilized when the O'Brien brothers became part of the Cardinal Social and Athletic Club. Although the names of his teams changed over those first few years, O'Brien continued to play the game he loved. That would include the Racine Cardinal Squad in 1916, which was part of the Racine Cardinal Pleasure Club, and we can't make that name up, the Racine Cardinal Pleasure Club. O'Brien was never an owner of any of these teams, but he was clearly the force behind the Racine Cardinals football team from 1916 through 1920 when he received notice of a special meeting in Canton, Ohio, to discuss the formation of a new professional football league. O'Brien attended that inaugural session on September 17, 1920, and the Racine Cardinals became part of the new American Professional Football Association. 
Ironically, the official minutes from the initial meeting mistakenly identified the Racine Cardinals as being from Racine, Wisconsin. This eventually helped nudge O'Brien to change the name of his team to the Chicago Cardinals on October 20th, 1920. That name remained for 40 seasons until the Chicago Cardinals moved to St. Louis in March of 1960. Chris O'Brien finally secured ownership of the team in the 1920s until selling the club to Dr. David Jones in 1929, who in turn sold the team to Charles Bidwell in 1933. The team remains with the Bidwell family to this day, but with so few owners in over a century, the link back to Chris O'Brien can easily be determined. During the first season of the APFA in 1920, O'Brien craftily secured the services of talented halfback, quarterback, and kicker, Patty Driscoll. O'Brien paid the speedy Driscoll $300 per game, which was considered a remarkable compensation for the time. Driscoll paced the Cardinals to a 6-2-2 record, that was 3-2-1 in league play back in 1920, and he became an instant favorite of the fans both due to his abilities on the field as well as the courage that he had with the smallest stature of just five foot seven. On November 28, 1920, the Cardinals defeated the Decatur Staley 7-6 in the first game of the NFL's oldest rivalry, which was honestly reported by the Decatur Herald, who said, The Staley's, on the strength of their record, claim the professional football championship of the country, having won every game played so far by easy margins. The Cardinals not only uh, outscored them, but also outplayed them every inch of the way, gaining almost twice as much and breaking up almost every play that was attempted. In Chicago, that gritty battle attracted a nice crowd as well as some positive media coverage from the Chicago Herald-American, which said, Chris O'Brien's Chicago Cardinals sprang the biggest surprise of the local football season when they walloped the undefeated Staley's of Decatur in a thrilling 7-6 contest at Normal Park. More than 5,000 fans saw the pastime, which was as full of football energy and skill as three ordinary contests. A week later, on December 5th at Cubs Park in Chicago, the Staley's, soon to become the Chicago Bears, returned the favor by edging the Cardinals 10-0. The Cardinals played one more game on December 19th that resulted in a 14-14 deadlock with the local Stames. But taking a peek under the covers revealed that the Stames had loaded up with players from the Staley's and the Chicago Tigers for this exhibition duel to conclude the Cardinals' season. Since it was a non-league game, no one probably paid attention to the roster jumping that was so evident. Prohibiting players from bouncing from one team to another was one of the primary goals of the APFA and demonstrated why a formal professional league was so essential to the future success of postgraduate football. I tell you what, Joe sure does love his old Chicago football. And speaking of a love of football, let's get into a little bit of my favorite team. Well, I mean, the same city, but <laughs> it wasn't the Detroit Lions back then. First, I'll read a short summary of the Detroit Heralds, and then you'll hear about the Cleveland Tigers. These were the only two teams I couldn't track down an expert for. So there's a little bit more of an in-depth episode for each team near the end of last year. Go ahead and check that out on the show. The Detroit Heralds were a team derived from a group of University of Detroit players. 
It really came about after the university decided to eliminate the football program. Led by Bill Marshall, the Detroit Heralds were formed in 1905. This was a big year for sports in the city of Detroit. It was the same year that legendary Ty Cobb started his pro career with the Detroit Tigers. By all accounts, it appears that the Detroit Heralds dropped their amateur status in 1911 and became a local semi-pro football team. Things were picking up for pro football in the city of Detroit. The events of World War I and the 1918 flu would end up closing the doors for many football teams in the area, but the Heralds kept on trucking. The team became well-known in Detroit by this time, winning city and even state championships. According to Vintage Detroit's website, the team drew 16,000 fans for a game against the Fort Custer All-Stars. Also, it would end up hosting Jim Thorpe and the Canton Bulldogs that same year. We discussed in an episode a while back with Chris Serb how many military teams played football as a way to earn money for the war efforts. But flashing forward, the league meeting of September 17th of 1920 that we keep talking about. The Detroit Heralds did not have representation at this meeting. However, they did join the league, considering they were a good fit for one of the nation's largest cities at the time. Detroit's first game was on October 17th in Chicago against the Chicago Tigers. Detroit lost this game, but according to NFL.com, the team ended up with a 2-3-3 record for the season. Then the team was rebranded as the Detroit Tigers for the 1921 season. But unfortunately, they had to disband in the same season. A short-lived ride in the NFL for the first team in the city of Detroit. The city would end up seeing another professional team join the NFL in 1925 under the name of the Detroit Panthers. This team was pretty good, amassing an 8-2-2 record, but only lasted a couple of seasons. Then back in 1928, the Detroit Wolverines had a 7-2 record in their inaugural season, but this would also be their last season. Finally, in 1934, George A. Richards purchased the Portsmouth Spartans and brought them to Detroit, ultimately becoming the team there today, my Detroit Lions. And a quick note about the Detroit Heralds. They are recognized as the first independent team in America to wear numbers on their jerseys, publicizing their players to make the game more fan-friendly. The Cleveland Tigers As with most teams back in the day, there was quite a bit of a turnover. The Cleveland Tigers were no different. But we're going to go ahead and pick up this story at the meeting. Local sports promoter Jimmy O'Donnell purchased the team and ended up going to the September 17th meeting in Canton, Ohio. Along with O'Donnell at the meeting was Stanley Kofal. The team ended up with a 2-4-2 record, so not too successful. The one bright spot of the season, though, was the game against the future first champions of the league, Akron Pros. Cleveland was able to score seven points against the club, which doesn't seem like that big of a deal, but this was the only points that the Akron Pros allowed all season. Moving to 1921. The team changed the name to the Cleveland Indians and shared both the name and stadium with the baseball club. The team ended up with a 3-5 and five record, and then they disbanded, leaving the city of Cleveland just wanting more. Cleveland fans wanting more. <laughs> That's been a common theme for Cleveland and Detroit for quite some time now. Someday we'll get our own. But at least we still have a team. I mean, next up we have Simon Herrera of RockIslandIndependence.com. He doesn't have the same. Take it away, Simon. Hey, Arnie. Thanks for having me. My name is Simon Herrera, and the team that I research is the Rock Island Independents. So a little bit about their origin. Uh, they're from Rock Island, Illinois, 
and that is one of the three cities that made up what was called the Tri-Cities. The other two were Davenport and Moline. Uh, back then, the high schools, the local high schools formed uh, their own football teams in 1899. Uh, the area itself uh, was really a, a farm manufacturing hub, and the Rock Island line uh, ran over the Mississippi there and then out east. So uh, that was really a central location for a lot of manufacturing, and in the end, that would play a part in how the team was able to you know, travel to play these other teams and bring in some of these teams from other cities. So the first mention of the independence was uh, November 11th, 1901. And it was by uh, a guy named Oscar Oberg. There's very few details about him or the team itself. But basically, this was just a small neighborhood version of the team that existed for a couple of years and then faded away. In 1907, Tom Kennedy, who had run a local baseball team, also called the Independents, he decided to form a football club. And since the team had no business backing or athletic club affiliations, the name was also called the Independents. So he would call uh, a meeting each year uh, after that to take up a vote to see if there was enough support for the team. And uh, for a couple years, there was. So... During those couple years, the team was successful, but again, they faded away. Uh, then in 1912, a guy named Joe Smith formed the team. And there's not a whole lot of mention of him, but he did hire a guy named John Roche, a former Rock Island football high player, to be team captain. So he assembled a mix of former Rock Island high players and a few other locals. And Roche led the team to an 8-0 record that year. And over the next couple years in 1913 and 14, they had a record of 19 wins, two losses, and one tie. So that was really, you know, the, that's really where the team took off and really became a good amateur team. Then in 1915, he handed the team over to Walter Flanagan, who had been his assistant for two years. And Walter Flanagan uh, really wanted this team to be the best team in the area. He was super competitive. Later on, he was using the newspapers to, you know, settle disputes and, uh, you know, go back and forth on the, the takes at the gate, uh, just filling the local Rock Island papers with all sorts of stuff about the, the teams and the other uh, owners in the Tri-Cities. But basically from 1915 to 1917, he built up a great team. He finally got a couple of college men from local colleges on his teams. And then in 1917, he invited the most famous team from uh, out west of the Mississippi there, the Minneapolis Marines, into town. The game drew over 6,000 people at Douglas Park, um, and it was a huge success. Uh, it was a close game. The Independents lost 7-3. to And three weeks later, they brought them back again. They lost by a little bit wider margin, but he realized something. In between those two games, he had lost to his rivals from Davenport, and he... Uh, took a gamble and it paid off. He invited five of the Marines back for a rematch against Davenport and they beat Davenport 23 to seven. So he stole a few players from Minnesota, recruited from outside the area and kind of outsmarted the Davenport team. Uh, 1918 was a uh, world war one and the Spanish flu. So that kind of slowed all the momentum he had. But in 1919, he had set his uh, sights very high and was, uh, from the start of the year, trying to schedule Jim Thorpe and the Canton Bulldogs. Um, so 
after getting off to a good start, one of the first two games, they ran into the Hammond All-Stars and lost uh, 12-7. to So after that, uh, things didn't look good. Jim Thorpe definitely wasn't coming to town. But over the next few games, they beat a team from Cincinnati. They tied the Pine Village team, who was a famous team from Indiana. And then they beat another team from Hammond, the Columbus Panhandles and the Akron Indians. And after that game that they had lost, they didn't give up another uh, point or lose another game. So when the season ended, they had a record of nine wins, one loss, and one tie. So Flanagan challenged Jim Thorpe and his 10-0 and Bulldogs to one game for the championship. He guaranteed Canton $5,000 share of the gate. Um, it's unclear if Thorpe didn't believe that he could deliver or maybe if his team really had disbanded, but Thorpe in the end turned down the offer. Flanagan even uh, took a train out to Canton to try and persuade him and his team to come, but uh, they never did come. So unfortunately, that's how that season ended. Both teams claimed the championship. Um, but the good thing about that year is they did get some recognition and this is basically the reason they got invited to the meeting in Canton in 1920. Four days before the meeting in Canton, Ohio, Walter Flanagan held his own preseason meeting in downtown Rock Island at the New Harper Hotel. At that meeting, he showed everyone and read the telegram that Jim Thorpe had sent him, inviting him to Canton with all these other great teams uh, to represent the independents. The independents were well-known in Ohio because they had defeated several teams from there in Indiana and Illinois in 1919. And as you recall, Flanagan had traveled to Canton to speak personally with Thorpe about setting up a championship game between the two teams. So when it came time to uh, round up the best teams in the country, obviously the independents were on that list. Uh, nothing from the meeting really stands out um, from the independents' point of view. They did elect Walter Flanagan as a secretary of the league that year. So how did the independents fare that first season in 1920? They had four wins, two losses, and one tie. Their wins were against the Muncie Flyers, Hammond Pros, Chicago Cardinals, and Chicago Tigers. They lost to the Decatur Staley's and the Dayton Triangles. Um, they also tied the Staley's. So 4-2-1. and one. And then their non-league schedule, they had three wins and one tie. So they fared pretty well overall, and that's because they had basically the same players that they had in the 1919 season, where they only had one loss. And uh, they tried to challenge the Canton Bulldogs for the championship. So, you know, one of the best teams in the country had most of the players back in 1920. And that's how they did that first season. An interesting note about the independents and their time in the NFL is that, you know, everyone knows the Green Bay Packers are the Bears' longtime rivals, but I like to say that the independents were the Bears' first rivals. Between 1920 and 1925, those six seasons, the Bears and the independents played 14 times. So the independents won twice, the Bears won eight, and they tied four times. And there's actually one other game in there. After the 1920 season in January of 1921, the the Bears played as the Chicago Pullman Thorns, and it was an indoor game in Dexter Park Pavilion, and the Independents did win that game. So technically, they got three wins. But I think it's very interesting that the Independents were actually the Bears' first rivals. 
Something else interesting about the Independence franchise and that first season, nine days after the meeting in Canton, Ohio, the Independence hosted the St. Paul Ideals in Douglas Park on September 26, 1920. And though that wasn't technically the first league game, that was the first game that featured a team from the new league. So in Rock Island, we like to recognize that special date. Um, also, everyone's aware of the game in Dayton uh, between the Triangles and the Columbus Panhandles. Uh, and since they were farther east, the game probably did kick off before the game in Rock Island. But it's not well known that Rock Island also hosted a game that first weekend. So those two games are considered the first two league games. The game in Rock Island kicked off at 3.04 local time. And I haven't seen a kickoff time of the game in Dayton. But since they're out east, we can assume it was earlier. Uh, one other potential note is that the game in Dayton went scoreless in the first half. And Rock Island actually blocked a punt and returned it for a touchdown on the Muncie Flyers' first series. So it is possible that the Rock Island Independents may have scored the first league touchdown. Not too bad for a team that you may never have heard of, huh? Speaking of teams you've never heard of, let's jump back into another host read article. This one comes, again, from Chris Willis over at NFL Films, covering the Columbus Panhandles. The Columbus Panhandles, football origins. The exact date... The Columbus Panhandle's football team started and who founded the team has been a mystery. Most experts have accredited Joe Carr, the Panhandle's longtime manager and former NFL president, with forming the football team in 1907. But the team was around several years earlier than that, as early as 1901, and sources that provide the earliest proof are the Columbus newspapers of the day. In 1900, the Columbus Press Post wrote the first ever article on the Panhandles, but no other mention of the Panhandles actually playing a game on the field. In 1901, the Panhandles became an official team and played two games under the guidance of an individual named William Butler. That year, the Panhandles played two games against the Columbus Barracks, a team made up of soldiers. Butler was a key man in getting the Panhandles started. Starting in 1901, the lumps came in bunches as the Panhandle struggled to learn the game on and off the field, as a majority of their players were employees of the Panhandle Division of the Pennsylvania Railroad, hence the team nickname. Having five different managers over the first four seasons didn't help either. To make matters worse, the team didn't even fill the squad in 1905 and 1906, but the fortunes of the Panhandles changed in 1907. You see, in 1907, a part-time machinist in the Panhandle shops walked in the office of the Panhandle Athletic Club and asked if he could reorganize the company's football team. That man was Joe Carr. He was a little guy who looked at first glance like Casper Milquitos. He grayed and balded early and wore rimless spectacles that made him always appear a little surprised. But behind those glasses, his blue eyes were honest and tough and his firm chin could jut forward with the determination that bellied that firm impression. Joseph F. Carr was a gentleman, but nobody ever pushed him around. He started as a machinist with the Panhandle Division of the Pennsylvania Railroad, but he loved sports. So at the age of 20, just as the new century began, Carr started a new career as a sports writer. Despite only a middle school education, he rose to assistant sports editor with the Ohio State Journal, one of the three major newspapers in Columbus at the time. During the six years he held that post, he was best known for his boxing stories. Reporting events was all right in his way, 
but Joe wanted to be more at the center. He wanted to make things happen. He admired the old Roman Charles Comiskey, who just started the Chicago White Sox in the fledgling American Baseball League. Emulating his idol, Joe went to some of his more athletic buddies back at the railroad and launched the famous Panhandle White Sox in 1901. How a baseball team could become famous in the first year while using another team's nickname was never made clear, but the squad played successfully around Columbus ball yards for many seasons. Carr used his experience with the baseball club and working at the newspaper to put together a football team that would make him well-known in the sports world and lead him to the destiny of guiding professional football. He started by reorganizing the Columbus Panhandles and using the perks provided by the Pennsylvania Railroad. One of those perks was the ability to travel free of charge on any train to any destination. Carr saw this as a huge advantage for his team, and he used this perk as the backbone for the team's financial well-being. Over time, the Panhandles became pro football's most famous traveling team, and in 1907, the team played half of its games on the road. Carr scheduled his team to play on the road not only to take advantage of the free travel, but also to eliminate the cost of a stadium rental. Most early pro teams who hosted games had to cover the cost of a stadium rental, as well as advertisements, security, tickets, etc., and other teams also had to cover travel costs when they played on the road. But Carr eliminated these concerns from the equation. As a result, while most pro teams drowned in a sea of red ink, the panhandles would be financially sound for the next 16 years. Which brings us to pro football's first road attraction, the Nesser Brothers. In 1907, the Panhandles finished the season with a disappointing 2-3-1 record, but Carr knew his team could play better because he had an ace in the hole. Actually, he had six aces. Boilermakers with the railroad by trade, the Nesser brothers were as rugged as three weeks in the desert. None of them were ever accused of using niceties on the gridiron. Newspaper accounts of Panhandle games teem with reports of rival players sent to the sideline with broken bones and other assorted injuries. At least once a year, a story would commend the team for playing a clean game. It's easy to read the unprinted footnote, unlike their normal style. None of the Nesser brothers ever went to college, although they didn't want for offers, even after they were well-established as pros. But as Jim Durfee, a Columbus newspaper man who refereed more than 100 Panhandle games, was fond of saying, You had to be an All-American to beat the Nessers. However, Though the Nesser brothers played football like the wild bunch toured cow towns, they also had a very real ability. Their father, Theodore Nesser, hailed from the Alsace-Lorraine and was a veteran of the Franco-Prussian War. Having had it with Europe, he took a boat to America and settled in Columbus where he found a job as a boilermaker for the railroad. A year or so later, Catherine Nesser joined her husband, bringing along their five children, Pete, John, Phil, Minnie, and Anna. In Columbus, six more children, including five boys, were born. All were delivered with an earshot of the panhandle's whistle. There's a famous story that when the boys grew up and the football team was going strong, Theodore served as water boy and Catherine washed and ironed the team's uniforms. The first part is probably an exaggeration, although old Theodore may have gone out on the field a couple times during timeouts to give his boys hell if they were losing. The second part of the story has to be true to some extent. If Mrs. Nesser cleaned only her boys' uniforms, she was practically launders for the whole team. Joe Carr used the six brothers as the backbone of the Columbus Panhandles, and the football-playing family remained in that role for nearly 20 years. From 1901 to 1922, 
No team fielded in 1905 and 1906, that is. The Panhandles were a major fixture in the sport, with their best years coming in a three-year span between 1914 and 1916, when the team went a combined 22-10-1. Over that same 20-year period, the Railroaders were also the best pro team in the city of Columbus. The team would compile an outstanding 33-5 record against opponents from Columbus, including an amazing 32-1 record over their last 33 games. The Panhandles were the best pro football team to ever come out of the capital city. With the combination of the Nesser Brothers as an attraction and the free travel by railroad, the Panhandles became the biggest attraction in the early days of pro football. The majority of the good teams in the Ohio League and around the Midwest were more than willing to schedule Columbus as they knew it would be easy to advertise a game featuring the Nestor Brothers. Fans everywhere came out to watch the Railroaders. The Panhandles, rough and tough playing style. Because of the limited time to practice and prepare for games, the Panhandles did the majority of their preparation during lunch. Workers had a one-hour break during a normal workday. And the players usually took the first 15 minutes to eat lunch and use the remaining 45 to practice football. The athletic field behind the railroad shops in Columbus became a popular spot to learn and watch the game of football. It must have been a funny scene. Boilermakers and machinists out on a dirty gravel field in blue jeans and work boots trying to run plays or kick football. There was an athletic field just outside the gates, Al Nesser recalled of his days with the railroad. We toiled for five hours, ate lunch, and then practice on full stomachs before going back to work. Over the years, Panhandle's rosters didn't include many former college players or All-Americans, so the athletic field in the railroad yards became the place where the team would find out who could play. The team's reputation for dirty play was learned and developed right on the railroad yards, not college gridirons. The press sometimes criticized the railroaders for the rough tactics, but fans loved them. In 1922, this was the last season for the Columbus Panhandles. They went winless in the NFL at 0-8-0 record. From 1923 to 1926, President Carr placed an NFL team in his hometown of Columbus as he replaced the Panhandles with the Columbus Tigers. After winning nine games in their first two seasons, the Tigers plummeted the next two years, compiling a 1-15 record in league play. Carr soon realized that the city was in love with Ohio State football, and citizens of the capital city could only afford to purchase one football ticket a week, so he folded the franchise after the 1926 season. Plus, Carr was moving the NFL to the big city in Columbus with only 290,000 citizens in 1930, despite being Carr's hometown and where the NFL headquarters was stationed, wasn't going to make the cut. Now we hear from John Steffenhagen about the Rochester Jeffersons. The Rochester Jeffersons began play in the fall of 1898 in downtown Rochester, New York, along Jefferson Avenue, thus the team name. It was a Sandlot football squad originally comprised of expelled University of Rochester students, players who spent too much time betting and playing football on campus and not studying enough. After being thrown off the team, the players and their parents turned to the enormously powerful and influential Jefferson Club. The Jefferson Club was a political entity which had power over candidates and elections in the early 1900s, not just in Rochester, but throughout the country. It had branches in many major cities and wielded its influence in support of the Democratic-Republican Party agenda, founded by Thomas Jefferson himself. 
The exclusive club supported the expelled students and paid for cleats and smocks and created a new Sandlot football team for them. The players were also allowed back into college after negotiations took place between the Jefferson Club and the University of Rochester. The first newspaper article mentioning the Jeffs team appeared in the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle in 1908, with William Glavin serving as their manager. 1908 was also the first year Leo Lyons joined the team, and two years later, the 18-year-old took over as player, manager, coach, and owner, steering them from a ragtag bunch of sandlotters to state champions. They were often referred to as the Jeffs. By 1910, the team wore bright red uniforms with two white stripes on the sleeves and the Jeffs logo on the front. Leo went with the bright colors to stand out from the other teams from the advice of childhood friend Walter Hagen, who would go on to become a golfing legend known for his flamboyant style. In the summer of 1910, the team had no manager, no future, and no owner. That is when Leo Lyons pursued his dream of a of professional football in Rochester and took over as player, manager, coach, and owner. Along the way, he would recruit one of pro football's first African-American players, Henry McDonald, that year, who would, don, who would don the red and white uniforms of the Jeffs. By filling the Jeffs roster with the best talent in Rochester, the team quickly became a dominant force in the city by 1915. The team players were now paid no longer amateurs, but semi-pros. The team challenged other state teams from places like Buffalo and Syracuse and vied for the state championship, usually against teams from Buffalo. By 1916, the Jeffs would be the New York state champions. With their owners still obsessed with making the Jeffersons a professional team, Leo contacted the only hotbed of football in the country, the Ohio League, and Jim Thorpe. Lions had heard that forming a pro football league was on the minds of those out west, so he booked a game against the vaunted Canton Bulldogs in 1917. It was the only way he saw to put the Jeffs on the map and make those aware in the Ohio League he wanted to be part of a new and exciting professional football league. After that game, Leo stepped aside Canton player Jim Thorpe and Canton owner Jack Kuzak and said he wanted in of a new league formed. Thorpe and Lyons exchanged phone numbers, and Thorpe said he would let him know when things developed. The next few years after dealing with World War I and the influenza epidemic in 1918, the Jets were still one of the best squads in New York. Leo was the only team manager and owner from New York invited to both organizational meetings in August and September of 1920. Unable to make the first meeting in Canton in August, Leo was present by letter. However, on September 17, 1920, Leo was present at Ralph Hayes' small automobile showroom for what the NFL recognizes as the founding of the NFL. Leo had only known one man from the meeting, Jim Thorpe, though Leo did strike up a conversation with George Hallis, who would become a lifelong friend. All the other men assembled there knew one another from playing against each other in the Ohio League, thus making Leo Lyons an outsider. During the 1920 season, the league teams played both league and non-league outfits. Sometimes they would have to change that would have to change years later. 
For the inaugural season, Leo Lyons bolstered his roster with college standouts like Bart Carroll and Jim Laird from Colgate, Joe DeMol, Frank Wickham, Ray Witter, Lou Usher, and Johnny Barsha from Syracuse. Jack Forsyth, a Rochester football legend, coached the team. The Jeffs won their first four games, but none were league teams. Their fifth game resulted in a 17-6 loss to the Buffalo All-Americans, who were a strong team. Rochester finished the season 6-3-2, though only played one league team. Unfortunately, fans in Rochester began revolting against the idea of a local team comprised of non-local players. Leo would explain in nauseam in the newspapers why talent could not cut why local talent could not cut it in a professional football league, and that football would become as big as Major League Baseball soon. Lyons was often referred to as a dreamer and a quack for that reasoning. It was not just a struggle for the Jeffs. All the, you know, all the new pro teams had it tough. The idea of a successful professional football league was not a popular one, especially outside of Ohio. <laughs> that story is way cool. I mean, Leo Lyons. Talk about your great granddaddy and just totally creating, starting. He was a Mr. Everything for the team. And speaking of Mr. Everything, you didn't really get into it as much here. You got to go back. You got to listen to that episode when we had John on the show. So you could really see how much Leo Lyons meant to the NFL and Rochester at that time. But now we're going to move on to another team in New York. This time we get to hear from Jeff Miller about the Buffalo All-Americans. When the American Professional Football Association began play in 1920 with teams such as the Akron Pros, Canton Bulldogs, Columbus Panhandles, Dayton Triangles, Decatur Staley's, and Rochester Jeffersons, the Buffalo All-Americans were there. Led by coach, quarterback Tommy Huggett, and a bevy of actual college All-Americans such as guard Swede, Youngstrom, tackle Lou Little, Murray, Shelton, and halfback Aki Anderson, Buffalo might have had the most aptly named team in the history of the league. The team was an outgrowth of a local semi-pro outfit called the Buffalo Niagara's, named for a Queen City street, who in 1918 had won the Buffalo Semi-Pro Football League title. A year later, the Niagara's core players formed a new team called the Prospects, after another Buffalo street. The Prospects carried on the tradition of success, taking the New York State Championship in its first and only season. After claiming local and state titles in successive seasons, Buffalo's gritters were eager to try their luck with the new National League they had read about. Having missed the initial league meetings, a letter requesting membership was submitted to the league founders, and the Queen City's team was welcomed as a charter member. Much of the early legwork for the Buffalo team was performed by Howard E. Barney Lepper, a former member of both the Niagara's and the Prospects. All of the early press announcements refer to Leper as the team's manager, and it was Leper and local businessman, and Leper's eventual successor as team manager, Frank J. McNeil, who signed the lease for the team to play their home games at local Canisius College's open area known as the Villa. One of the first players signed up was a feisty 27-year-old quarterback out of the University of Michigan named Ernest Tommy Huggett, a teammate of Leper's on the Niagara's and Prospects. After guiding those teams to respective championships, the diminutive Huggett, all of 5 foot 8 inches in height and weighing 150 pounds, was the obvious choice to call the signals for the new franchise. After recruiting such college stars as guard Adolph Swede Youngstrom of Dartmouth, halfback Aki Anderson of Colgate, and Murray Shelton of Cornell, and N. Henry Hine Miller, 
and center Lord Ray out of the University of Pennsylvania, the team eventually adopted a most logical nickname, the Buffalo All-Americans. The All-Americans established themselves as one of the elite teams in the early days of the APFA, finishing within one game of the title in each of the first two seasons of the league. In 1921, the All-Americans actually claimed the title, but lost it to the George Hallis's Chicago Staley's in an executive decision. They had gone undefeated in their first nine games that year, and after defeating the Dayton Triangles at the old Canisius Villa to end their season on November 27th, the All-Americans claimed the league title with a record of 8-0-2. But for some reason unknown, team manager McNeil had scheduled his team to play two more games. That, well, he told local papers, would have no bearing on the team's claim to the title. Enter George Hallis. Hallis' Staley's, who became the Chicago Bears a year later, had amassed a record of 7-1-0, with their only loss coming against Buffalo on November 24th which was Thanksgiving Day. He scheduled the rematch with Buffalo at Chicago for December 4th, hoping to exact revenge against the team that had marred his perfect record. McNeil made the mistake of scheduling his team's two quote-unquote postseason contests on the same weekend, the first for Saturday, December 3rd, against the tough Akron Pros, after which his men would take an all-night train to Chicago to play the Staley's on Sunday. After dispatching the pros on Saturday, the All-Americans were off to Chicago, where they disembarked the next day in no condition to take on Papa Bear's hungry brutes. The All-Americans fought hard, but the Staley's took the game, 10-7. McNeil still believed his team was champion, but Hallis had other ideas. He argued the title belonged to the Staley's, basing his claim on his belief that the second game of their series with Buffalo mattered more than the first one. He also pointed out that the aggregate score of the two games was 16-14 to in favor of the Staley's. McNeil insisted that his team's last two games, including the one against Chicago, were merely exhibitions. It did not matter. The league declared the Staley's champions. McNeil spent the rest of his life arguing that his team had been swindled but was never able to get the league to reverse his decision. Some historians still agree that the title is rightfully Buffalo's, but it is unlikely the city will ever see the 1921 decision overturned. The All-Americans enjoyed winning seasons in 1922 and 1923, but never again attained the success that they had in those first two seasons. McNeil sold the franchise in 1924 to a group led by Warren D. Patterson and Tammy Huggett, who changed the team name to the Bisons. Huggett lasted one more year before hanging up his cleats. Further changes in ownership and name occurred throughout the decade, but to no avail. By 1929, Buffalo's first professional football team had run out of money and time. Fast forward nine decades. The Buffalo All-Americans were thrust into the limelight on October 30th, 2011, when the San Francisco 49ers tied an obscure record set by the All-Americans in the league's inaugural season. The record in question was for most games at the start of a season, with at least one rushing touchdown scored, while not allowing a rushing touchdown against them. The long-standing record of seven games set by the All-Americans took 91 years to break. The All-Americans made sports headlines again in 2019, when ESPN announced that the New England Patriots had compiled a startling point differential. Points scored versus points given up, that is, of 170 points through the season's first seven games. The network, however, used a graphic that showed the past differential was only good enough for second best in the league history. The best 
Yeah, you guessed it. It's the All-Americans of 1920 who compiled a plus-minus 218 points through their first seven games. What's more, the All-Americans of 1921 had the fourth-best differential of 163 points. George Hallis's Chicago Bears held the third spot with 173. You know I have to say it, but yes, we did have Jeff on the show before, too. Common theme, huh? Next, we don't we didn't have this guy in the show, but we're going to have Roy Sai cover two more teams. He is the vice president of the Pro Football Researchers Association. Take it away, Roy. Who were the Hammond Pros and where is Hammond? The Hammond Pros are one of the original 14 teams that played in the inaugural season of 1920 for what is now known as the National Football League. The league at that time was officially known as the American Professional Football Association, or APFA for short. The pros played a total of seven games in 1920. Three were against other league opponents, while four were against non-league opponents. The pros lost all their league games, all by a wide margin. They did, however, fare a little better against non-league teams, winning two and losing two. They won against two strong Chicago independent teams and lost to another Chicago independent team, then another lost their local rivals, the Gary Elks. More on these games later. Hammond is located on the southern shores of Lake Michigan in the northwest corner of Indiana, just 20 miles from downtown Chicago. The pros, like many other teams at era, can trace their roots back to around 1910. In the early years of the 20th century, Hammond, a hard-working steel town, routinely fielded strong teams that battled for the county title or a state title. From 1912 to 1917, the Hammond Clabby Athletic Club was one of the strongest teams in the area. The athletic club takes its name from middleweight boxer Jimmy Clabby, a popular boxer from the Hammond area. Doc Young, who would go on to become the owner of the pros, served as a trainer and doctor for the Clabby football team. In 1919, local promoter Paul Pardoon formed a team called the Hammond All-Stars. Some papers in that area refer to the team as the Bobcats. Pardoon formed his team to compete with the famous Canton Bulldogs, who were one of the strongest teams of the era. Pardoon went all out and stocked the team with former college stars like Patty Driscoll from Northwestern, George Hallis from Illinois, Milt Gee from Dartmouth, Johnny Barrett from Washington and Lee, and Emmett Keith from Notre Dame. The All-Stars played a strong schedule and went 4-2-3, and three, beating Rock Island, Minneapolis, Detroit, and Toledo, and tying the Canton Bulldogs 3-3 three three, and losing a late-season game by a close score of 7-0. Doc Young traveled to Canton in mid-September 1920 to represent Hammond, hoping to get a team in the newly formed American Professional Football Association. The Indiana-Illinois states were well represented, with George Hallis now representing the Decatur Staley's, Chris O'Brien representing Chicago Cardinals, Walter Flanagan representing the Rock Island Independents, and Guy Falcon representing the newly formed Chicago Tigers. Falcon, a star player for the 1919 Hammond All-Stars, took many of his key players from the team and formed a new team that would use Wrigley Field as their home park. With many of the key players from the 1919 All-Star team moving other teams, Hallis moving to the Staley's, Driscoll to the Cardinals, Gee, Baird, and Keefe moving to the Tigers, Young struggled to put together a strong team, having to fill his roster with local talent and calling back some of the former Clabby stars. Scheduling was tough in the inaugural season as teams played a mixture of games against league opponents and non-league opponents. The pros, with no local field to call their home base, played all their games on the road. In fact, of the 35 games the pros played in their seven-year existence, only two games were played at home, 
with the home field being in nearby Gary, Indiana. The pros' first game was against the strong Rock Island Independents on October 10th in Rock Island. The Independents coming off two lopsided victories, 48-0 against the St. Paul Ideals and 45-0 against the Muncie Flyers, had no difficulty with the pros, shutting them out 26-0. The next week, the pros traveled to Dayton, Ohio to meet the Triangles. Again, the, the pros could not muster any offense and were soundly defeated 44-0. With no game scheduled next week, the pros regrouped and played the next three games against local independent teams. The pros fared well, scoring their first points of the season in their 14-9 win against the Chicago Logan Square Athletic Club. No record was found as to who would score these points and will likely remain a mystery even 100 years later. Gaining momentum, the pros traveled to the Pullman section of Chicago and defeated the Pullman Thorns in a close game 14-13. Hank Gilo scoring the first documented points for the pros, followed by another touchdown by Mace Roberts. Traveling next to nearby Gary, Indiana, the pros lost a close game to the Elks by a score of 7-6. The pros scored a touchdown in the first quarter but missed the extra point, and that would ultimately decide the game as the Elks scored a touchdown in the fourth quarter and were successful with the extra point. The pros, now with a 2-3 and three record, next traveled to Decatur to meet the Staley's. But the George Hallis-led team defeated the pros by a score of 28-7 in front of 30,000 fans at Staley Field. Playing their last game on Thanksgiving Day, the strong Chicago Booster Athletic Club, playing at DePaul Field, soundly defeated the pros 27-0. So the 1920 season looked like this for the pros. 0-3 in league play, but 2-2 two two in non-league play. The pros were outscored 154-41, being shut out three times. By not having a local field to play on, the pros were forced to play all their games on the road. With playing only road games, there was very little support, as the local newspapers only had brief articles leading up to the game and usually a small recap of the game the following Monday. Doc Young and the pros returned in 1921 and continued to play in the NFL through the 26th season. With all the league games being played on the road, the pros could only win five games while losing 26 games and tying four more. During the 1921 through 26 season, the pros compiled a mediocre 4-5-1 record against non-league opponents. The pros did play a home game in 1923 against the Dayton Triangles, winning 7-0, while their other home game was in 1926 against the Duluth Eskimos, losing 26-0. Both home games were played in nearby Gary, Indiana at Gleason Field. With the NFL getting stronger, the decision was made to pare down the number of teams eliminating all the road-only teams and many of the small market and underperforming teams. Gone were the road-only teams representing Los Angeles, Kansas City, Louisville, and Hammond. Small market teams in Hartford, Akron, Racine, and Canton, and underperforming teams in Detroit and Columbus were dropped from the league. The Hammond pros struggled in the early years of the NFL, but continued to play seven years. Doc Young will always be credited as being one of the founding fathers of the NFL, and the pros as one of the original 14 teams. Who are the Muncie Flyers and where is Muncie? The Muncie Flyers were one of the original 14 teams that played in the inaugural season of 1920 for what is now known as the National Football League. The league at the time was officially known as the American Professional Football Association, or APFA for short. The Flyers only played one official league game in 1920, and it was a lopsided loss for the Flyers as they traveled to Rock Island, Illinois, and lost 45 to nothing. More on that game later. 
Muncie is located in east central Indiana, about 65 miles northeast of Indianapolis. The Flyers can trace their roots back to 1905 when a group of neighborhood kids got together and formed a team to play other neighborhood teams. Muncie, at that time, was made up of several communities, Avondale, Congerville, Heacon Park, and Muncie proper. In 1910, the Congerville Athletic Club formed a football team called the Congerville AC. The 1920 Flyers team was based in the Congerville section of Muncie. The Congerville AC was one of the strongest teams in the area, playing well against teams from Indianapolis, Fort Wayne, Wabash, Cincinnati, Dayton, and Evanston. The athletic club was managed by Earl Ball. He started out managing the team, then eventually owned the team, and remained associated with the Flyers until the early 1920s. In 1913, Congerville formed a team called the Flyers. The Flyers played mostly local Muncie teams and did very well against those other teams. Before the 1916 season, the Congerville AC and the Congerville Flyers joined forces and built a strong team that played against other teams in that area. With America involved in World War I, the Flyers disbanded for the 1917 and 1918 seasons. In 1919, with the war now over, many teams dusted off their old uniforms and put together strong teams. Led by quarterback Cooney Chekai, the Flyers finished with a 4-1-1 record in 1919, with their only loss to the Fort Wayne War Vets. In 1919, there were many strong teams in the Indiana, Ohio, Illinois, and New York areas. When word got out that there was a meeting to discuss establishing a formal league, the leaders of the Congerville team wanted to be part of it. In mid-September 1920, Earl Ball and Cooney Chekai traveled to Canton, Ohio, and represented the Flyers team. This legendary meeting also had in attendance George Hallis representing the Decatur Staley's, Chris O'Brien representing the Chicago Cardinals, Ralph Hay representing the Canton Bulldogs, Carl Stork representing the Dayton Triangles, and Doc Young representing the Hammond Pros. Cleveland, Akron, Buffalo, Rochester, and Detroit were also represented at this meeting. To help with the newly formed league's image, America's most popular athlete, Jim Thorpe, was elected president. The Flyers came to the meeting hoping to get Congerville Flyers into the league. Nobody had ever heard of the small village of Congerville, so Ball and Chekai pitched the team as the Muncie Flyers. With 14 teams in the fold, the next task was to develop a schedule. The inaugural season had a very loose schedule, with some teams playing most of their games against non-league opponents, others playing against mostly league opponents, and others playing a mix of games against league opponents and non-league opponents. There was no fixed schedule as teams scrambled each week to schedule a game for the following week, hoping for an opponent that was strong enough to bring in the good gate and also strong enough to provide a good game for the fans. With Ball and Chekai traveling back to Muncie, they recruited players from many top Indiana colleges like Purdue, Indiana University, Notre Dame, and Rose-Holman. A quick practice game was played on September 26th against the local Muncie Tigers team. First on the league schedule was a trip to Rock Island to play the Independents on October 3rd. This game, along with the game in Dayton, where the Triangles played the Columbus Panhandles, is credited as the first game where two APFA teams played each other. Playing at historic Douglas Park, the Independents outclassed the Flyers by scoring two touchdowns in the first quarter, another two touchdowns in the second quarter, and two more in the third quarter, and then only one in the last quarter to roll to a 45 to nothing whitewash of the Flyers. Interesting note, Douglas Park is still in existence today as the last remaining park from the 1920 season. On October 10th, the Flyers had a game scheduled against the Decatur Staley's. 
Upon hearing of the results of the Flyers' Independence game, owner-coach of the, of the Staley's, George Hallis, quickly canceled the game against the Flyers as he feared that such a poor team would be a bad draw. The Flyers were idle the next two weeks, while some of their players jumped to other teams to get a quick payday. The Flyers were negotiating a game on October 31st against the Cleveland Tigers, but the details of that game could not get worked out. Finally getting a game on the schedule, the Flyers traveled to Dayton on November 7th to play the Triangles, but the day of the game brought a driving rain and the game was canceled. With many players moving on to other teams, the season looked over for the Flyers. With independent football still strong in the area, the Flyers were challenged by the Gas City, Indiana Tigers for a Thanksgiving game. Ball and Chekai quickly contacted their players, and the game was set for Thanksgiving afternoon. The Flyers defeated the Tigers 19-7 to claim the local championship. The Flyers were then challenged by the Muncie Offers More Athletic Club for a game to claim the city championship. The Flyers overwhelmed the Offers More team 24-0 to claim the city championship. The Gas City team, still upset by their loss to the Flyers, challenged them to another game on December 5th. The Flyers again won this game, this time by a score of 13 to 7. So, the 1920 season looked like this for the Flyers. 0-1 in league play, but 3-0 in non-league games. Many record books do not recognize the last three games as official games, as independent research only discovered these games in the last 20 years. The Flyers came back in 1921 with Ball and Chekai leading the way. The team was formed with many of the same players as the previous year. A 74-0 non-league win over the local Elwood Legion gave high hopes to the Flyers for the season. The next week, the Flyers traveled to Evansville, Indiana to play the Crimson Giants, but lost 14-0. The following week, the Flyers hosted the Cincinnati Celts at Walnut Park, but lost by his same score of 14-0. In that game, Chekai broke his leg and was done for the season. With their star player injured, the Flyers closed up shop for the 1921 season. A late November game against the Green Bay Packers was canceled as the Flyers could not field a team. For the 1922 season, the APFA changed its name to the National Football League. The Flyers, with their poor track record, dropped out of the league. The Flyers continued to play from 1922 to 1926, reverting their name back to the Congerville Flyers. They played local Indiana and Ohio teams and won most of their games, but never played against really strong teams. In 1925, with no home field to play at, the Flyers set up operations in nearby Jonesboro and played as the Jonesboro Flyers. Returning back to Muncie for the 1926 season, they played one last season under the name of the Flyers, then disbanded forever at the end of the season. The Muncie Flyers can still hold their heads high, as Earl Ball will always be credited as one of the founding fathers of the NFL and the Flyers as one of the original 14 teams. Hammond and Muncie. Two more teams that most have never heard of, but albeit very important to the formation of the league in the early days. Another common theme that we've seen throughout this episode. And speaking of important and significant to the league, next up we have another host read article. This one comes from Steve Prasar over at DaytonTriangles.com. The football team won the Dayton City Championships in 1913, 1914, and 1915 under the names cadets in 1913 and 1914 and gym cadets in 1915 the name was permanently changed to the dayton triangles in 1916 which is where we picked this story up in 1916 fb mcnab a patent attorney for the dayton engineering laboratories company known as delco 
started organizing a recreational football team from among the employees of three downtown Dayton factories. The factories were Delco, Dayton Metal Products Company, DMP Company, and Domestic Engineering Company, Deco, later called Delco Light. These were three factories, all founded by Dayton industrialists Edward Deeds and Charles Kettering, and formed an industrial triangle of plants in downtown Dayton. Rather than recruit a complete team from the factories, McNabb got together with Carl Stork to sponsor the Dayton Cadets football team and use players recruited from the three factories to fill out the team roster. Thus, Delco, DMP Company, and Deco provided players as well as corporate sponsors. The Dayton Cadets became the Dayton Triangles that year. Later, the Dayton Wright Airplane Company, another Deeds and Kettering venture, became a fourth corporate sponsor. The Dayton Cadets football team was a mix of St. Mary's Institute, now the University of Dayton, alumni, and other local athletes. The Dayton Triangles were the only undefeated professional football team in America in 1918 and may claim an unofficial professional football championship. In the era before the formation of the APFA League in 1920, the team went 41 wins, 4 losses, and 4 ties, dominating Southwestern Ohio professional football. In 1918, they compiled a record of 8-0-0, scoring 188 points to their opponents 9, and were the only undefeated professional football team in America. Under their coach and star runner, Earl Gracie Neal, the Triangles defeated the top professional teams from Detroit, twice, Columbus, and Toledo in that season. But jumping forward to the foundation and the formation of the league, the Dayton Triangles professional football team was one of the four charter member teams of the professional football league that was to become the National Football League. The Dayton Triangles representative, their manager, Carl Scummy Stork, was at the first professional football meeting in Canton, Ohio on August 20th of 1920. It was held at Ralph Hayes Hotmobile Auto Dealership on Tuscarora Street in Canton, Ohio. Teams represented were the Akron Pros, Canton Bulldogs, Cleveland Tigers, and our Dayton Triangles. Scummy Stork was also at the second organizational meeting held in Canton, Ohio on September 17th, 1920. Then we jump forward a little bit, about a half a month, to the first game for the Dayton Triangles. <laughs> well, this happened to be the first game for two APFA teams also that would match up against each other, so we can consider this the first National Football League game, even though the name National Football League would not come for a couple more years. The game was on October 3rd, 1920. And in this first game, the Dayton Triangles defeated the Columbus Panhandles, 14 to nothing. The high point of the Triangles 1920 season was a 20 to 20 tie at Triangle Park with the Canton Bulldogs. No other team had been able to score three touchdowns on the Bulldogs since 1915. In the third quarter, Jim Thorpe narrowed the score to 20 to 17 with a 45 yard drop kick. Then in the final minutes, he zeroed in on a 35 yard place kick that tied the score. The first NFL halftime show. On October 1st, 1922, the Oorang Indians, an all-Native American team with Jim Thorpe, played in their first game at Triangle Park. More than 5,000 people paid $1.75 a ticket to see the Dayton Triangles defeat the Oorang Indians 36 to nothing. The Oorang Indians owner, Walter Lingo, purchased the NFL franchise to publicize his Oorang breed of Airedale dogs and his Oorang 
dog kennels in LaRue, Ohio. To Walter Lingo, the Oorang Indians team was just there to play football and to help him sell his Oorang Airedale dogs. Thus, rather than rest or plan for the second half, the Oorang Indians football players were running Walter Lingo's Oorang Airedale dogs through tricks for the halftime crowd. Thanks to Walter Lingo, his Oorang Airedale's dogs, and the Oorang Indians football team, NFL's first halftime show was in Triangle Park in Dayton, Ohio. And to close it off, let's go back to the beginning. We're going to talk about Carl Stork. Dayton provided one of the league's organizational founding fathers, the manager of the Triangles, Carl Stork. He participated in all of the league's first organizational meetings and served the NFL for the first 21 years of its existence. He was elected secretary-treasurer of the league on April 30th of 1921. Stork was the NFL president from 1939 to 1941. He conducted his league business from his office in the Winters Building in downtown Dayton, Ohio. There you go. The beginning of the NFL. The first game. Oh, man. Just think about it. This year, 2020, it was so different. And having that very first game with the Chiefs and Texans, even though it was kind of a lopsided one-story type of deal, it was just cool to have that first game of the season 100 years later. But back then, man, what kind of situation did they have? I don't know. It was just, ah, let's take that DeLorean. Let's go back. But speaking of the first game, now let's go ahead and close out the end of the first season. This one revolves around the Akron Pros with Ken Crippen. It's time to dig deep into the archives to talk about the first National Football League champion. In fact, the 1920 Akron Pros were champions before the NFL was called the NFL. In 1920, the American Professional Football Association was formed and started play. Currently, 14 teams are included in the league standings, but it is unclear as to how many were official members of the association. Different from today's game, the champion was not determined on the field, but during a vote at a league meeting after the season. Championship games did not start until 1932. Also, there were no set schedules. Teams could extend their season in order to try and gain wins to influence voting in the following spring. These late-season games were usually against lesser opponents in order to pad their own win totals. To discuss the Akron Pros, we must first travel back to the century's first decade. Starting in 1908 as the semi-pro Akron Indians, the team immediately took the city championship and stayed as consistently one of the best teams in the area. In 1912, Peggy Parrott was brought in to coach the team. George Watson Peggy Parrott was three-time All-Ohio football player for Case Western University. While at college, he played professionally for the 1905 Shelby Blues under the name Jimmy Murphy in order to, pervert, to preserve his amateur status. It only lasted a few weeks until local reporters discovered that it was Parrott on the field for the Blues. When brought before the university's athletic board, Parrott admitted his wrongdoing and was subsequently barred from all intercollegiate play. He was the first college star to be disciplined by a school for playing professional football. He finished the 1905 season with the Lorraine Pros, before he moved on to the Massillon Tigers in 1906. That year, October 25th specifically, Parrott threw a pass to Dan Bullitt Riley. That is considered by some to be the first forward pass in a professional football game. Parrott continued his pro football career with the Franklin Athletic Club before he returned to the Blues as a player, coach, and manager in 1908. In 1909, the Blues tied the Akron Indians for the state championship and won it outright in 1910. Shelby would again see themselves in the championship game in 1911, this time against the Akron Pros. A disputed offside ruling during the game angered Canton to the point of forfeiting. 
Pratt joined the Akron Indians in 1912 and immediately changed their name to Pratt's Indians, but the little-known Elyra Athletics took the championship. Pratt immediately set out to rate the champion Elyra roster and brought back the 1913 crown after a 9-1-2 season. They repeated as champions in 1914 with an 8-2-1 record. Of note during that season and their November 15th matchup with the Canton Pros, Akron fullback Joe Collins tackled center Harry Turner, breaking his spine and severing his spinal cord. He died a short time later. Akron's roster was decimated in the offseason. The Maslin Tigers and the Canton Bulldogs stole the bulk of Peratt's players, and the 1915 season was a disaster for Peratt. Going 1-4-2, including four games played as the Shelby Blues, was enough for Peratt, and he left to head up the Cleveland Tigers. The 1916 squad was reorganized by Howe Welch, footballer out of Case, and the brothers Sui and Chang. The Akron squad was also picked up a sponsor in the Burkhardt Brewing Company, namely Gus and Bill Burkhardt. The team was renamed the Akron Burkharts, and they went 7-4-1 for the season. However, that sponsorship only lasted one season as Suey Welsh and Vernon Mac McGinnis bought the team and renamed them the Akron Pros. Welsh and McGinnis brought in Al Nesser, the youngest of the seven Nesser brothers that played for the Columbus Panhandles between 1904 and 1922. Al Lewis Nesser did not play college football, but started immediately in the pros with the Columbus Panhandles in 1910. He stayed on and off with the team through 1919 with stops on the Canton Bulldogs, Maslin Tigers, as well as the Akron Pros. In 1917, the Akron team went 6-2-0 before temporarily disbanding before World War I. They retook the field in 1919 as the Indians, with Suey Welsh out, and Ralph Waldsmith, Art Ranney, and Park Crisp joining McGinnis as owners. Waldsmith played for the Indians in 1914 and the Canton Bulldogs in 1916. Crisp played for Canton in 1916 and Akron in 1917. The new owners brought in halfback Fritz Pollard, who was one of the first African-Americans, along with Bobby Marshall, to play in the NFL in 1920. Fritz Pollard played his college football at Brown University. He graduated in 1919 and joined the Akron Indians to start his professional career. After the 1919 season, the team was sold to Art Ranney, an Akron businessman and former player for Akron University, and a cigar store owner, Frank Need. The Indians' name was sold to Suey Welsh, who fielded a team in 1921. Welsh later became a successful boxing owner and was inducted into the World Boxing Hall of Fame. His brother, Charles Welsh, also became a boxing promoter. Even though it had been attempted previously, 1920 saw yet another push to form a professional league. Teams in the mythical Ohio League saw clubs from other parts of the country draw more fans to the games, which obviously translated to increased revenue for the teams participating. The fear was that more talented players could be drawn away from the smaller Ohio towns to other cities in search of larger salaries. Something needed to be done to keep the Ohio teams on a competitive level with organizations from outside of the Buckeye State. The first step was taken on August 20, 1920, when four of the Ohio League teams met in Ralph Hayes' Hubmobile dealership in Canton, Ohio. Hay owned the Canton Bulldogs and was joined by his star player, Jim Thorpe. Also at the meeting were Frank Need and Art Ranney of Akron, Jimmy O'Donnell and Stanley Kofall of the Cleveland Tigers, and Carl Stork of the Dayton Triangles. Since no minutes were recorded for this meeting, the final outcome is a bit of a mystery, but a few things could be ascertained from the media accounts of the event. First, the name of their new league was to be called the American Professional Football Conference, and Hay was elected secretary. 
Now the focus would shift to the major issues facing those teams. Players were running from team to team to collect a paycheck. Members wanted this to stop and agreed to refrain from enticing players to leave their current club. Next, they needed to get player salaries under control, so they introduced a salary cap. Finally, they needed to address the increasing row between colleges and professional clubs with respect to undergraduate players. Colleges increasingly frowned on their players involving themselves in professional contests. The members of the league agreed not to allow these undergraduates to play on their squads. With all of the major issues addressed, they needed to get outside clubs to join and agree to the affirmations stipulations. All of the work that came out of the meeting would be for naught if only the four attending clubs were members of the league. They needed to bring in the organizations that they feared most would induce their players to leave. Hay was responsible for contacting top-notch professional clubs in the surrounding states to have them attend the next meeting. Before that, however, the league received letters from three clubs expressing interest in joining. The first was from Leo Lyons of the Rochester Jeffersons. Actually, it's not absolutely certain that the letter was from the Jeffersons, but since they were by far the strongest Rochester team, it can be assumed that it was from the Jeffersons. Couple that with the fact that Leo Lyons attended the follow-up meeting on the August 20th um, affair, it was safe to say that the letter was from the Jeffersons. Leo had always pushed for a league, and when he heard that there was the possibility of one forming, it is assumed that he jumped at the chance to participate and sent the letter. The second letter was from Buffalo. Again, since no meeting minutes were recorded, there's no way to absolutely be certain who wrote the letter, but it is assumed that it was from the Frankfurt, the Buffalo All-Americans, who were essentially the 1919 Buffalo prospects under new management. The third letter was from Hammond, but it's unclear as to which Hammond team sent the letter. The Hammond pros attended the second league meeting, but the Hammond Bobcats were also a strong contender in the area. The answers to these questions remain to this day. The second league meeting was held September 17, 1920 in Canton. Hay and Thorpe were there along with previous attendees Need, Ranny, Stork, Kofal, and O'Donnell. New to the meeting were Leo Lyons of the Rochester Jeffersons, Doc Young of the Hammond Pros, Walter Flanagan of the Rock Island Independents, Earl Ball of the Muncie Flyers, George Hallis and Morgan O'Brien of the Decatur Staleys, and Chris O'Brien of the Chicago Cardinals. One of the first items to come out of the meeting was to change the name of the league to the American Professional Football Association. Next up was to choose the leadership. Jim Thorpe was elected as president, Stanley Kofal was elected vice president, and Art Ranney took the secretary-treasurer position. With the leadership in place, they can now get down to the details. Young, Flanagan, Stork, and Kofal were responsible for drawing up a constitution and bylaws, it was also decided that each team would provide a list of all players used during the 1920 season and that this list was to be, for, be provided to Art Ranney, the association secretary, by January 1st of 1921. This was a reference to teams enticing players to jump teams, the only th- of the three items that actually addressed the reasons why the league was formed in the first place. The league shaped up as follows. The Akron Pros, the Buffalo All-Americans, Canton Bulldogs, Chicago Cardinals, Chicago Tigers, Cleveland Tigers, Columbus Panhandles, Dayton Triangles, Decatur Staleys, Detroit Heralds, Hammond Pros, Muncie Flyers, Rochester Jeffersons, and the Rock Island Independents. All that was left was to play the games. Of note, the official meeting minutes of this first league gathering were kept on Akron Pros stationery. The Akron Pros opened their 1920 season by playing the non-league Wheeling Stogies, and Al Nesser scored the first three touchdowns, two fumble recoveries and a blocked kick recovery, 
and back Fritz Pollard added two on end runs. Back Harry Harris finished the scoring with the fourth quarter touchdown to seal the 43-0 victory. In the sweltering heat, Akron continued their winning ways by beating the Columbus Panhandles 37-0. Akron seemed to gain yardage at will while the visitors struggled to drive the ball. Fullback Frank McCormick started the scoring with a three-yard dive through the Columbus line and again scored to give Akron a 14-0 lead. Harry Harris, Bob Nash, and Fred Sweetland scored touchdowns, and then Scotty Bierce tackled Frank Nesser for a safety to finish the scoring. Akron continued their homestand by taking on the visiting non-league Cincinnati Celts. The game was not as close as the 13-0 final score indicated. Akron seemed to drive the ball with ease, while Cincinnati did not register a first down. Tailback Rip King scored approximately five minutes into the game to give Akron a 7-0 lead, while Fritz Prollard clinched the victory with a touchdown run in the final period. Scoring would have been higher, but Akron missed on three field goal attempts. Next up for Akron was the visiting Cleveland Tigers. The pros racked up 12 first downs in the game, but it took a freak play to put points on the board for the home team. In the first quarter, tailback Stanley Kofal dropped back to punt for the Tigers. As the ball was snapped, Bob Nash streaked through the line, caught the ball as it was punted, and raced the final eight yards for a touchdown. Even though Akron was able to move the ball, the Cleveland defense held firm as Akron approached the goal line. Final score was 7 to nothing to preserve Akron's undefeated streak. 10,000 fans saw Akron dismantle the perennial powerhouse Canton Bulldogs on October 31st. Coming off their first loss since 1917, the Bulldogs were expected to rebound on their home field, but the Akron squad was just too much. In the first quarter, Charlie Copley put Akron on the board with a 38-yard field goal. The legendary Jim Thorpe entered the game in the third quarter, and Canton showed some signs of life. However, a strong defensive effort by Akron prevented Canton from crossing the pro's 10-yard line. Canton tailback Joe Guyon returned Rip King's punt to midfield. Johnny Gilroy dropped back to pass, but Bob Nash and Pike Johnson split the line and blocked Gilroy's pass. Johnson caught the deflection and ran 50 yards for the touchdown. Canton's only chance to score came in the third quarter when Thorpe failed to kick a goal from the Akron 18-yard line. Akron traveled to Cleveland for their second road game of the season. Two weeks prior, the pros beat Cleveland 7-0, but the Tigers wanted revenge. To this point in the season, Akron was undefeated, untied, and gave up no points to their opposition. The pros wanted to keep that streak alive. It started with two beautiful 20-yard runs by a tailback, Fritz Pollard, to give Akron a 7-0 lead in the second quarter. In the third quarter, Cleveland struck. Back Mark Devlin hoisted a 25-yard pass to tailback Tuffy Khan, who raced 25 yards for a touchdown to tie the game. These were the first points scored against Akron all season. The game ended in a 7-7 tie, breaking Akron's undefeated, untied record. The following week saw Akron take on the 4-0-2 Dayton Triangles. Dayton's defense held for the first three quarters, but Akron broke free in the final period. Rip King passed to Frank McCormick for a touchdown to break the scoreless deadlock. Soon after, Fritz Pollard ran around end for a 17-yard scoring scamper to give Akron a 13-0 victory. At this point in the season, the Akron Pros were 6-0-1 and and rated face a rematch with the 6-1-1 Canton Bulldogs. With only a few days rest after the win over Dayton and an undefeated season still in play, Pros could not afford a letdown against the championship contender Bulldog team. Even though Akron beat Canton earlier in the season, there was an unwritten rule that with tiebreakers, second games count more than the first when it came to the final standings. Canton made a costly mistake in the first quarter, Canton quarterback Tex Grigg fumbled an Akron punt, 
and then Scotty Beers fell on it to give the ball to the pros at the Canton 32-yard line. A pass from Rip King to Beers put the ball on the Canton 12-yard line, and a pass from King to Bob Nash gave Akron a 7-0 lead. After that, Akron's defense took charge, and Canton was unable to score. In two games, Akron held Canton scoreless and preserved their undefeated streak. Next, Akron faced a rematch with the 5-1-2 Dayton Triangles. The only loss for the Triangles was against the Pros. It was a hard-fought match, but Akron took charge in the second half. With Dayton quarterback Al Mark going down to a broken collarbone, the, t- the Triangles' offense sputtered. In the third quarter, Rip King des- received a Dayton punt, but fumbled the ball around midfield. Fritz Pollard recovered the loose ball and weaved his way to the goal line for the first score of the game. In the fourth quarter, Akron's offense drove to the 20-yard line. A fumble and two penalties pushed the pros back to the triangle 32-yard line. On the next play, King dropped back to pass, but it was hit by tackle Bra- Max Broadhurst. King fell to one knee, but the play was not over. King got up and tossed a pass to Pollard for a score and a 14 to nothing victory. That essentially eliminated Dayton from championship consideration, while the 8-0-1 Akron Pros were on their way to a title. Around December 5, 1920, the Akron Pros sold end and tackle Bob Nasty Nash to the Buffalo All-Americans for $300 and 5% of the gate receipts for the game with the All-Americans. That was considered the first player transaction in league history. However, Nash did not suit up for either team in their December 5th matchup. Only 3,000 fans showed up in the Buffalo winter weather. Intermittent rain and snow combined with a blustery wind made things difficult for both teams. However, late in second quarter, Akron's offense provided a spark. Five straight first downs put the ball on the Buffalo two-yard line. The defense of the All-Americans held on downs. Akron again drove to the shadow of the Buffalo goal in the fourth quarter when Rip King tossed a pass to end Al Nesser, who rumbled his way to the one-yard line. Buffalo back Tommy Hewitt stopped Nesser short of the goal. Near the end of the game, Hewitt dropped back to punt from his own goal line. His punt went about five yards, but with an Akron man touching it and failing to recover the loose ball, Buffalo's Bodie Weldon fell on it to regain possession for the All-Americans. A poor pass by Lud Ray almost caused Buffalo guard Sweet Youngstrom to fall back into his own goal for a safety. That was the last scoring opportunity for either team. The game ended in a scoreless tie. With only one game remaining, 8-0-2 and two, Akron needed to beat the 10-1-1 Decatur Staley's to leave no doubt as to the first champion of the APFA. Decatur did not leave anything to chance and hired Chicago Cardinal tailback Patty Driscoll. However, even with all the stars on the Staley team, neither team was able to put points on the board. Akron's offense had a slight advantage in yards, but the Staley's drove deeper into Akron territory. Obviously, without points to show for their efforts, it really did not matter. The championship would be determined by a vote of the membership, with Akron and Decatur both claiming the title. The two teams had to wait until April 30, 1921 to see who would take home the crown. That marked the end of the first year of the APFA. Even with their best efforts, the league was not able to stop the three things that forced them to create the association in the first place. Skyrocketing salaries, team jumping, and the use of collegiate undergraduates. In fact, it it was if the association did not even exist. The end of the 1920 season still called for the formation of a pro football league, even by members of the association. Regardless, the APFA decided to continue and had a meeting on April 30, 1921. Thorpe and Kofal did not attend, so Art Ranney took charge. Other attendees included Joe Carr, Leo Conway of the Union Athletic Association, George Hallis, Ralph Hay, 
Lester Higgins, who is the brother-in-law of Ralph Hay, Charles Lambert, Leo Lyons, Frank McNeil, Frank Need, Chris O'Brien, Morgan O'Brien, Carl Stork, and Doc Young. First on the agenda was to vote for the champion of the association. Carr nominated the Akron of Pros, and it was approved. Akron was able to rack up an impressive unbeaten 8-0-3 record, playing tough opponents. That is what carried them to the championship, even though Decatur tied Akron and thought that they, that would be enough to get them the championship. And Buffalo and Akron tied to beat Canton. Regardless, Akron won the championship based on the vote of the membership. The pros were awarded a loving cup from the Brunswick Bulky Calendar Company. The next item on the meeting agenda was the appointment of a new leader. After a short discussion, Joe Carr was elected the new association president, replacing Jim Thorpe. Morgan O'Brien was elected vice president, and Carl Stork continued as secretary and treasurer. Making good on the promise from the previous meeting, members of the association had until May 15th to submit a list of all players that played on their squad the previous season. These players were not allowed to be enticed into leaving until the club management released them from their contract. This was to address the team jumping issue that plagued the teams of that era. Finally, the association was taking a hard stand to clean up the sport. Another point that needed to be addressed was players playing for more than one team in the same week. This hit home with Conway and McNeil, as both teams were guilty of this practice. McNeil's Buffalo All-American players suited up for Conway's union team on Saturdays, and then returned to Buffalo to play for the All-Americans on Sunday. This was pretty much overlooked up to this point, but the situation would boil over toward the end of the 1921 season. Another association meeting occurred on June 18, 1921, at the Hollanden Hotel in Cleveland. The main purpose of this meeting was to start establishing schedules and to approve a new constitution. Rochester's Leo Lyons never attended this meeting, but representatives from Akron, Buffalo, Canton, Chicago, Columbus, and Dayton all made the trip. There's no official record of Buffalo ever being admitted to the association in 1920, but it was brought up at this meeting. Also attaining membership at this meeting was Cleveland, Detroit, Rock Island, and Toledo. Even though Rock Island was a member in 1920, there seemed to be an issue as to whether they were still members at the end of the 1920 season. It is unclear as to the exact reason, but the Independents played a team from Washington and Jefferson at the end of the season, a frowned-upon offense. As if the first two meetings were not enough, a third meeting was held August 27, 1921, at the LaSalle Hotel in Chicago. Leo was able to make it to this meeting, which also included members of the Akron, Buffalo, Canton, Chicago, Cincinnati, Cleveland, Dayton, Decatur, Detroit, Evansville, Fort Wayne, Green Bay, Louisville, Minneapolis, Rock Island, and Toledo squads. Coming out of this meeting was an agreement that any organization receiving a request to have a college player suit up for their team must notify university officials. There are no records showing that any club followed through with this agreement. Also, Buffalo was officially admitted to the association along with Minneapolis, Evansville, Tonawanda, and Green Bay. The Washington Senators and Brickley's New York Giants were not admitted to this meeting, but were admitted before the beginning of the season. For the 1921 season, Fritz Pollard became co-head coach with 1920 head coach L.G. Tobin, becoming the first African-American head coach in NFL history. With an 8-3-1 record, they again made a run for the league championship but fell just short of the 9-1-2 Chicago Staley's which were formerly the Decatur Staley's, and the 9-1-1 Buffalo All-Americans. In 1922, the American Professional Football Association changed their name to the National Football League. The Akron Pros started to fall apart in 1922, 
only going 3, 5, and 2 that year, 1, 6, and 0 in 1923, and 2, 6, and 0 in 1924. They saw a slight improvement in 1925, finishing fourth in the league with a 4-2-2 two, two record, but fell apart in 1926, only winning one of eight games as the newly renamed Akron Indians. Wow. Talk about a lineup of heavy hitters covering the early days of the NFL, and even further back talking about the wild west of pro football. Now, I, I don't know how else to say this, but I got to say, I really do appreciate all the hard work, the dedication, everything that these fine gentlemen have given, not just to provide for this show and this episode, but everything that they've done. I mean, think about it. Pouring over articles, NFL newspapers, really not NFL newspapers, but all these other papers all the time, just, you know, probably their eyes bleeding, just trying to look at the papers from long time ago, all these things, just so they can recreate and preserve the history of of the teams that they care about and also the league that they care about and everything else that encompasses all of those words. But as promised, here's a quick bio of each member of the, what we'll call the Knights of the Pro Football History Roundtable. Everything will be over at the website. Again, you have to go over the website. Way more information, each article in depth, every person on here, the expert. We've got more on them. We've got all the other episodes that they have, all the other articles, links to back and forth and everything you can dream of. So go over to sportshistorynetwork.com right now. Or, well, maybe listen to this episode. Then go back. Either which way. I don't care. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com. But here is a quick little rundown of all the guest experts on this episode. The first is Chris Willis. Chris is the head of the research library over at NFL Films, position he has held since 1996. He's also an author of seven books revolving around early history of pro football. His most recent one covers Red Grange. You know that guy, the first true superstar of the NFL. We had Chris on the podcast back in episodes 107 and 108. The next is Jeff Miller. Jeff is probably the foremost expert on the Buffalo All-Americans history. The first NFL team in the Queen City. He even wrote a book on it. We had Jeff in a couple episodes back in 98 and 99. The next you have John Steffenhagen. John is the great grandson of legendary Leo Lyons, the man responsible for making the Rochester Jeffersons happen and to keep them going. You can find more on his work over at rochesterjeffersons.org. He was also on the show oh, back in uh, episodes 88 and 89. Next, going around the table, we have Steve Pissar. Steve operates the Dayton Triangles website and keeps the memory alive of the location of the first ever NFL game. You can find his website over at DaytonTriangles.com. Then we move on over to Simon Herrera. Simon operates the Rock Island Independence website and keeps the memory alive of an important team in the early days that most now don't even know about. You can find his website over at rockislandindependence.com. Another thing you should do is go over there and check out what they call vintage football. It's kind of like where they have these games and stuff where they recreate the rules, stuff like that, similar to back in the early days. Then going back around the table again, we have Ken Crippen. Ken is the president of the Professional Football Researchers Association and has also written numerous articles and has also published two books. We had him. Back in episode 121. Next, Roy Sai. Roy is the vice president of the Professional Football Researchers Association, and like many other on this list, Roy has written numerous articles for the Coffin Corner. Well, 
I think maybe we'll have to get this guy on the show sometime, huh? Last but not least, Joe Ziemba. I want to give a huge thank you to Joe for everything that he's done for me, personally, and the Sports History Network over the past few months. Joe was one of my earlier guests on the show. You can listen to his episodes back in 87 and 88 to talk about the Chicago Cardinals, but then we also brought him back on in episode 95 to talk about the Chicago Tigers. But it goes well beyond that. I'm not sure if we really talked about that enough on this podcast because we bring him on the other shows. But Joe provides killer content on the Sports History Network with this show, When Football Was Football, which goes over many of the topics in his book by the same title. But it even goes beyond that. For me, it's even more important because every time that Joe and I get together for a recording session for his podcast, I look to him as not just another transaction. He's, he's, he's a mentor to me. He's a friend for bouncing ideas off of just everything. So Joe, if you're listening still this long, I know it's a long episode, but if you're still listening right now, thank you, Joe Ziemba, so much for everything that you do for me personally, the football history dude. Also for us here at the Sports History Network. And there you have it. An incredibly long, but well worth it episode to celebrate the NFL's 100th birthday tomorrow. Well, I mean, of course, if you're listening to it on the day it releases, that is this tomorrow. For those of you that are after the release date and you're not 100% sure what day I'm talking about, the NFL was 100 years old on September 17th of 2020. Something, if you listen to it in the future again, That is a bright spot in a year that has really tested our human and American resolve. I tell you, we all believe it's going to get better out there and we will continue to fight for everything and everyone on this planet that deserves to be treated the same, fair, and just. The NFL has had a very long run so far. So have people on this planet. So has the country. So has this nation. But just like everybody out there, the NFL... Everything, the best is yet to come. That's all I have to say about that. Keep being out there together. Thank you all for listening to this celebration episode of the 100th anniversary birthday of the NFL. But for now, dudes, I'm through if you're through. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Football History Dude. To make sure you're the first to get the next episode, Please subscribe on your podcast player of choice and head on over to thefootballhistorydude.com for the show notes and more information on the history of the NFL. And remember, dudes, where we're going, we don't need roads.